This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited to be speaking today with Wahid Hassan, founder of ZMH Advisors, which is a data-driven ESG and shareholder advisory firm. ZMH was an advisor in some of the biggest activist investor proxy contests of the past year, including Huntsman, U.S. Foods, and Live Person. Before launching ZMH in 2020, Wahid led the ESG and activist defense practice at the Blue Shirt Group, an IR firm in San Francisco. And before that, he was head of corporate governance and shoulder activism defense at proxy solicitor Alliance Advisors, where he worked on contested mergers. And also fascinatingly, he spent five years at the most influential proxy advisor, Institutional Shoulder Services, managing the section of the ISS that at the deal we care the most about, the special situations research team which are the people who, if you don't know, you know, review activist contests and make recommendations for or against dissidents on mergers. Uh, I wrote one ISS report up today on a uh, kind of heated proxy fight. He worked on over 100 contested transactions, including proxy contests at Target. I assume that was Bill Ackman, Office Depot, and NRG Energy. Thanks, Wahid, for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Ron. Okay, so I often hear that there's a disconnect between what companies think investors want to talk about and what they actually want to talk about and vice versa. And uh, I thought maybe that was an, uh, a good way to kind of have you introduce the firm that you run, ZMH Advisors, and in how, I guess, my, my sense is it seeks to close that disconnect, providing a lot of data points and research so both companies and investors are prepared. Is, is that right? Tell us a little bit about ZMH. Absolutely. So ZMH is a data-driven ESG and shareholder advisory firm. We use next-gen data analytics and AI to offer unique insights into what matters most to investors. On a fundamental level, we are bridging the information gap that exists between companies and investors. And our clients range from pre-IPO companies to some of the biggest corporations in the S&P 500 index. And what they tell us is that the unique data set that we have is instrumental in helping them prepare for that investor engagement. We proprietary investor engagement dashboard covers investors with over 50 trillion of AUM, including some of the largest global passive and active investors such as BlackRock, Vanguard, Tito Capital Group, Wellington, and others. Wow. So just kind of give me kind of a scenario for that. You're an institutional investor, you're either side or you're a company expecting to talk to an institutional investor. The company expects that the investor wants to talk about the performance of the business and its M&A track record, and but really the institution wants to talk about you know corporate governance problems, maybe right, and, mm-hmm. and how it's a dual class structure and they don't like it. I don't know. I was just think of an example. You know, th- talk about somehow how there's this disconnect that you see and how your data can help that. No, definitely. So I think like increasingly, especially the passive funds and more so also the active funds, they are incorporating ESG metrics as a key input into the investment decision-making process. So I'll, I'll give you a good example. So we were working with a client, a large corporation, and they had a call with the investor. For this investor, the ESG rating determines the cost of capital that they deploy internally to determine how much they should be invested in a certain stock. Mm-hmm. And that cost of capital is, so like if you look at the model, the cost of capital is further decided by the different factors like S category and G category and somewhat E category, like what is the climate strategy? 
So when we are helping working with companies, we help them understand, okay, for each investor, what are the unique ways that that investor incorporates ESG in the decision-making process? And what are the levers that you need to like focus on that will help you, that investor get to a better place in terms of their knowledge about the company? So I think that is the bridge that we create using data and technology. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. I've, you know, I've heard this so many times and I've heard other situations where the institutional investors have tried to talk to companies. I'm thinking of one big oil major in particular, mm -hmm. and they've just, you know, not been able to have conversations. So, uh, but more important, you know, when you have that conversation, it's great to have the data points mm -hmm. to uh, a company to know what the, the big institutional investor wants to talk about and each individual a big investor wants to talk about something different. So no, it's definitely a fascinating. Company. So I wanted to talk, you know, I know you advise uh, activists in a number of situations. And this came up in kind of a conversation we had before, where, uh, you know, I, there's been a perception, and, and, I, and I feel like it's a perception that I've helped promulgate over the years, that uh, activist investors are, have an easier time getting uh, director candidates than they have before. And I feel that, you know, on, on a broad level, this is true compared to, let's say, 15, 20 years ago, that they can get high quality director candidates. But you, you su suggested that it's still difficult for activists to find quality candidates in many cases because these director candidates are worried that if they were on a distant director slate, this would make it more difficult for them to get nominated, let's say, by a company in an, in an uncontested situation. So maybe talk about that. And I know that there's some cases where, you know, the activist finds this superstar kind of mm -hmm. candidate, like an ex-CEO of a Fortune 500. Right. And that person, I suspect it's not a problem. But there's like a huge area of middle level director candidates that it's tough for activists to, to get them to agree. Is that fair or, or what do you think? It is fair. And I think the reality is somewhere in between, because depending on who the activist is, what is the track record, it might be easier for them to recruit like really solid candidates, right? Like a former CEO, extensive board experience, great domain knowledge, right? But if you are a newer activist, right, or someone who hasn't done a lot of campaigns, it does get challenging to find that nominee, the right, the perfect nominee. And what we see, and we work with an like, executive search firm to find qualified nominees for our clients. But as we are interviewing these candidates, the one question that typically comes up is, if I am on the activist slate, does it impact my ability to serve on other boards? With recruiting agencies, Deem, consider me as an activist nominee, not as a company nominee. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, you hear these questions from people or candidates who haven't been at a CEO level, right? Maybe they were president of a group, head of like a certain strategy or marketing or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of relevant knowledge for that specific campaign or for that target company, but they don't have extensive board knowledge. And experience. So what their concern or reservation uh, where it lies is being on, does being on the active slate impact their ability to be recruited in other situations? And also how will they be perceived internally if they get on the board? Will they be perceived as independent nominees? Will they be perceived as someone who has supported uh, the activist? We also hear questions about what do investors think about people who serve on the activist slate? And for someone who has, is maybe serving on one private or public board, they need to go back and get approval internally from the board they serve on that they, it is okay for them to serve on an activist slate. 
Mm. So as you can imagine, right? So like if I serve on company A and I want to be an activist slate on company B, the biggest concern like someone will have is like, are you building this bond with the activist? So if an activist were to, for some reason, three, four years down the road, come after me, would that be a challenge? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, you know, once they uh, go on a distant slate on company B, mm-hmm. then company B, I'm sure, will be doing this big investigation into right. everything related to that activist, right. that, that that candidate. And I've actually heard a situation where a distant candidate had to step down because, you know, the company put some pressure on the company that they either worked for mm-hmm. or another board that they were on. And they just were like, I can't deal with this. And they left. And I feel like that's why you see Starboard or some of the activists nominate more candidates than they have, than there are slots to fill. And then they kind of narrow it down uh, as you get closer to the contest. And so, but anyways, okay. So there's one of the, I guess, high profile activist situations that I've been writing a lot about lately, where I suspect the activist is, you know, maybe uh, currently looking for director candidates and could be having trouble over concerns that, you know, it's a classified board. So they would only have, if most successful, two directors on a five-person board. So, you know, would they be there and just have, be a, have an acrimonious relationship with the CEO? But anyways, this is a company called Massimo, which is a medical technology company. And they had a bylaw that has since been removed, but the bylaw created a lot of discussion in the activist community because it would have required the activist investors nominating directors at Massimo to disclose the names of their underlying limited partner investors, names and addresses. And uh, so activists at this company, this the activist there is uh, Politan Capital, you know, they're seriously considering nominating director candidates. They filed a lawsuit in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Long story short, the bylaw was removed. But activists considered the bylaw to represent an existential threat to their ability to raise capital because typically, in most cases, the uh, activist funds limited partner investors are uh, are secret. I mean, it's it's not publicly disclosed. In fact, I under- my understanding is that they have signed confidentiality agreements, the limited partners do, with the hedge fund, the activist fund, so that their names remain private. So, I mean, do you agree with this premise that it would be difficult if suddenly every activist nominating directors had to disclose to companies and potentially publicly the names of their underlying investors? Yeah, I, I think like it would definitely make it challenging for activists to do so. But we have sort of a more nuanced view on this whole bylaw situation, right? Now, for instance, like what if the activists raised capital from a big pension fund? Like I know like many years ago, Legion raised, got seed capital from Calstas, right? So just taking hypothetically Legion as an example, if Legion went after a company, they said it's Calstas, how does it impact the company, right? So what is the company going to say? Oh, we don't like Calstas, therefore you, you don't run a campaign against us. So I think it does impact the activist ability to raise capital. Obviously, it makes it a bit challenging. But I, I think in the world of universal proxy card, it has additional implications. For instance, what if a pension fund wanted to take advantage of a universal proxy ballot to have one of their nominees or independent candidate on the slate. So how will the company actually implement this bylaw provision? Will casters, for instance, again, hypothetically, have to disclose names of every single like pensioner who is part of casters, like who participates in the program? So I, I think like if you peel the onion and try to think through like the actual how will this like bylaw be implemented in reality? I, I mean, it'll run into a lot of challenges, at least in our opinion. Yeah, no, I never, that's an interesting example, the Calsters one. I hadn't thought about it 
prior to our conversation. <laughs> so that definitely would uh, raise a lot of problems. Okay. So, and then there was a provision originally in it that was, I believe it was removed, you know, and then obviously the whole bylaw was removed, but there was a provision that would have required limited partner investors of the activist fund, nominating directors to disclose if their family, family of the limited partner investors in the activist fund were invested in the Massimo competitor or invest in a counterparty to litigation with Massimo. Massimo is currently in litigation with Apple, for example. And so you had this interesting point, okay, the underlying limited partner investors of the activists had to disclose their investments if, if they were invested in a competitor or counterpart litigation. What about the corporate directors at the company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What about the corporate directors? What about the executive leadership team, right? So will they have to disclose? And I think like at a very high level, we've heard this argument. Even when I was at ISS, I heard this argument. And since then, that the nominee that is being put forth by the activists, does that nominee has any potential conflicts? Are there any reasons for the board to be concerned that some intelligence will be shared with the competitor? That, I think, is a legitimate concern to some degree. But if we take what the company was saying, right, in this situation, like if you look at BlackRock, like T. Rowe Price, I mean, they invest in like the index, right? These are index investors. So what does that mean for a large index fund? So because they're not definitely not sharing information across all the portfolio companies. So I, I think right. like creating a separate sort of a rule because someone is activist and may agitate for change at your company and putting in a very separate bucket and isolating them so you have a very different standard for all the index funds and other investors out there that may have both index and inactive portfolios, right? doesn't make, I think, a lot of logical sense. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And so I've heard that the, it's very possible that this bylaw could pop up at other companies targeted by activists. And so I wanted to tap into your ISS, Institutional Shelter Services, background for a second and get your thoughts on, if it did go mainstream, I mean, Right, you know, because it was removed, we won't have any legal ruling in Delaware mm-hmm. about it. But if it did, you know, how do you think ISS would respond? And you had suggested to me that shareholders might start submitting proposals on the topic. You know, explain to me how you would envision this would have played out. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think like any company that adopts such a bylaw, it puts the board members in a very precarious position, especially when they have to go in front of uh, like proxy advisors like ISS, Glass-Lewis, and other investors. I think like one scenario that might play out is like some, a company adopts this bylaw year to, first of all, it will be deemed as shareholder unfriendly because you're isolating a certain class of investors or type of investors. So it's shareholder unfriendly. And typically, investors and proxy advisors do not like shareholder unfriendly measures, right? Mm-hmm. So now, are, is there going to be a sunset provision? Like for in proxy fights, we see companies adopt a limited duration poison pill, right? Mm-hmm. So is this, I don't, like bylaw amendments typically don't have sunset provisions, right? Uh, maybe there are some carve outs in this whole, whatever modified structure comes out of it, mm-hmm. right? So let's say that's not the case. So you're the one, I believe proxy advice and investors will send a strong message to the board, especially the Norman Gov committee that, hey, this is shareholder unfriendly. You need to undo it. Scenario two is investors start submitting shareholder proposals, right? Saying that you need to unwind this bylaw. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens in that scenario? A majority of shareholders will support that proposal, Mm -hmm. the shareholder proposal. It gets, let's say, majority support. 
any company who adopts this bylaw is unlikely to unwind it because of a large shareholder support, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say a company doesn't unwind it. That leads to an automatic against or withhold from proxy advisors in year two. Mm-hmm. Right. Recommend against or withhold right. uh, exactly. directors, yeah, because they did and, not find it. Yeah, right. So it seems like lots of complications on so many right. different areas with this one, but it'll be interesting to see if it happens. Now, for now, the crisis from the activist point of view mm-hmm. is averted, and they mm-hmm. can continue to raise money, I guess, for their uh, activist funds. But the, anyways, one last thing about the uh, Massimo, the lawsuit kind of exposed another situation I thought was kind of interesting. So the bylaw with that provision was removed, but the lawsuit by the activist Politan is continuing and it's focusing on a change of control payout that was set up in 2015 with the company's founder, who's also the chairman and CEO of the company. And it, the, the payout, uh, you know, which is fairly substantial, ranging with uh, stock options and RSUs and things like that, would be triggered and it would be a, a fairly substantial amount. Anyways, it would be triggered if the company set up a lead independent director which currently does not have, even though the company has a CEO who's the chairman of the board. And the payout would also be triggered that, you know, going to the CEO if two dissident directors get on the board. Now, the company, Massimo, did waive this provision for the 2023 proxy season. So essentially, when if Politan does try to nominate directors and succeeds at getting two directors on the board, it would not be triggered. But it is kind of an unusual pay plan. That would be, I guess, one, triggered if the company sets up a lead independent director, and two, be triggered if the activist succeeds at getting a minority of two directors on the board. So I don't know. Do you agree that, I mean, what do you think about this pay plan? And how do you think other investors might think about it? Yeah, this this sounds to me a lot similar to the poison put arguments I would hear when I was at ISS and since then. When companies would come in and say, hey, if the activist won, especially for majority votes late, right? If majority of the board is overturned, it will trigger all the debt payments. The company is going to go bankrupt. I mean, this argument would come up like frequently when I was at ISS. And I've yet to, in my 20 years career doing this, I've yet to see a company actually be forced to make all these debt payments because of board changes. So this like sounds a more a lot like one of those poison put arguments. And I, and I think like it just shows how disconnected the board is from what good or acceptable corporate governance practices are these days. And I think at some level, it also highlights the influence the CEO has on the board members because they haven't been able to push back and say, hey, this does not make any sense. I mean, in today's world and age, most in, like <laughs> it'll be rare to find an investor or a, uh, in, and proxy advisory firms that would be supportive of such a provision. And yeah, I figured I found that it's between 500 million to a billion dollars would be the payout. And, you know, this is uh, not a huge company. I think it's a nine billion market cap company. Um, so, you know, it seems like it would be a really huge payout to the CEO. And obviously it's been waived for this year, but uh, it could come back next year. And so, and you know what? I, and, uh, Wahid, I was thinking I exactly those debt payment <laughs> poison pills. I remember seeing those every now and then, and they seem to always get pulled at the last minute. It seems like a threat that the uh, companies don't go through on. So, okay, we don't have a lot of time. I wanted to just bring up one other activist situation very quickly that I, I think is a, a fascinating story. You know, this uh, this year we have a huge uh, proxy contest that was just canceled. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, uh, Nelson Peltz at Tryon Fund Management 
had nominated himself to get try to get onto the board of Disney. And I guess, Wahid, I wanted to get your thoughts about what do you think was the driving factor in him deciding to cancel his contest? It, it didn't really last that long. It was like a month or two months since he launched it. And, you know, what's interesting is during the time when there was some agitation and a lot of uh, speculation that he was going to launch a proxy contest at Disney, the company went in and removed the CEO and brought back their superstar CEO, Bob Iger. And uh, anyway, so then he subsequently did a restructuring plan. So I'm just curious, you know, what do you think contributed to his decision to cancel the contest? And how would you describe it? Is it a win for Nelson Peltz? Is it a mixed bag? Um, or did he get taken, a, you know, did, did, is this a loss for the activist? Well, like having advised numerous activist investors, uh, I mean, what, one thing that we know for sure is as long as the share price goes up, regardless of whether the activist gets a board seat or not, they, it's a win for them. right? And right. I think what we've seen at Disney the stock has reacted favorably to the CEO change, to the restructuring. So it's definitely, in, in the economic sense of it, it's a win for Triant. Now, with respect to the factors that were into play for, for trying to pull out, I think it was the logical decision to make from their vantage point because the, the board was responsive to shareholder pressure, right? I mean, they changed the CEO, which is a big deal for any company out there. They quickly got to work. They announced business re- restructuring or business reorg. They restructure, announced a restructuring plan. Last year, the board settled with Third Point, another That's activist, right. and appointed like uh, like very seasoned executive to the board. So, in a nutshell, if you see, like the board was responsive, right, to like what shareholders were asking, including client, right, and. So if Klein were to run this campaign, go move forward with the campaign, they, they would have to make a compelling case as to why the steps taken by the company were not enough. Mm-hmm. And also they'll have to make a case like what would they propose differently? And if, if you think about all the steps that the company had already taken, answering those two questions wouldn't have been very easy. Mm-hmm. From Tryon. From try Tryon's point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I think it was the right call. And given all the things that the company had done and the way things have moved forward in terms of this restructuring, responsiveness to like the act settlement last year with another activist, CEO change. I mean, this like at least from where we were sitting, when we were reading all the restructuring, we thought this would be a natural outcome. Yeah. And also the other thing is at this point, it hasn't been outrageously expensive for Tryon, <laughs> but if they continue to proceed with it, Right. We talked about this before. They have a huge retail investor base. That Absolutely. Is not all uh, like at Procter & Gamble, I feel like a lot of it was uh, isolated as ex-employees in Cincinnati. It's Disney, they have retail base that's all over the place. It would be very expensive for them to go on, you know, the ISS Glass Lewis recommendation. I think, you know, I don't know how powerful it would have been, even if it had gone for Tryon, because of the, you know, do, do retail investors pay attention to that? And so I don't know. I, I feel like it would have been expensive. I mean, he had, I think I read an estimate that was like $25 million is mm-hmm. what uh, Tryon ex- estimated was going to spend on this contest. They obviously spent far less than that at to this point and got a uh, you know, pretty good return, it looks like. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there was a retail investor base, you think that that uh, would have made it expensive to continue? Absolutely. I think like anytime you have a reasonably large retail uh, shareholder base, like Tactically, you have to have a sort of different strategy because even if you win ISS, Glass, Lewis, there is no guarantee that every single institution will uh, align with your sort of campaign, right? They will vote for you. 
and the delta falls within the retail sort of bucket and retail predominantly tends to be supportive of management team generally retail investors do not support the the activist is it just like and there are many reasons for that but i think it would have been like really expensive campaign to run for one board seat and the fact that the company has taken a lot of the steps that crino is like looking for i think like spending that kind of money on a retail campaign maybe wasn't justifiable Yeah, no, it's interesting and I'm actually writing about a situation where there's an activist seeking to get seven director seats mm-hmm. at a company where according to my fact set has only like a 33% institutional base which means that the largest group of shares is is uh retail. So I think it'll be a wild proxy fight, you know, ISS and Glassdoor came out in favor of the company and against the activists but like who knows how this will play out because with this interesting right? because like sometimes the retail shares are also concentrated right and so when people use like and having worked at a proxy solicitation firm and ir firm and iss like typically when we use the term retail we think like these are mom and pop shareholders but a lot of times that's not the case i mean you have individuals who own large chunks of shares and so you can have like individual shareholder who owns like 3% of the stock it's still considered retail but because they are not an institution it's held in a person's name but the ownership can be concentrated within the retail sort of bucket as well yeah no that's interesting that's very interesting so uh anyways we are out of time and you've been listening to the activist investor today podcast and i've been speaking to wahid hasan founder of CMH Advisors. Thanks, Wahid, for taking the time. Thank you so much.